postpartum body odor. It is a totally natural phenomenon because your body chemistry changes after giving birth. And so sometimes that means that what worked before is no longer effective. But I am excited to say that now there is a solution for that stubborn odor. The Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant is a completely natural deodorant made by a postpartum mom who went through it herself. And it works by eliminating and preventing bacterial body odor without covering up your skin's comforting smell to your baby while giving you 12 hours of odor control. And let me tell you, it actually works. Here at the house, we've all been trying it and loving it. Now, before you think, ew, you're sharing a deodorant with your husband and daughter, let me explain that this full-body deodorant comes in a convenient pump applicator that lets you apply it anywhere on your body with no bacteria traveling on the deodorant, so no ew involved. We also love that the Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant has a delightful natural scent of USDA certified organic extracts that smell like a pink sugar cookie with lemon frosting. I thought this would be a little strange, but it's actually amazing. Also, the Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant is free from artificial fragrances and any kind of senoestrogens or herbs that can interfere with breastfeeding. Find your Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant at postpartumdeodorant.com. That's postpartumdeodorant.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 20% off through the month of May. Get your Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant now at postpartumdeodorant.com and start smelling more like yourself again. I love Jenny Kane. At this very moment, I'm feeling so comfy and cozy as I'm practically getting a hug from my Jenny Kane crop cashmere cocoon cardigan. I am enjoying this sweater so much that I've been living in it all spring long. And with Mother's Day just around the corner, this is a feeling you can gift all the well-deserving moms, moms-to-be, and mother figures in your life by giving them the gift of Jenny Kane. Along with bringing you this episode, Jenny Kane is a California brand through and through, and their staples make getting dressed so super easy. Think minimalist and effortless, but totally refined. Jenny Kane means luxurious cashmere sweaters, iconic accessories, elevated versions of your everyday basics, plus the most incredible home essentials. For a limited time, Birthful listeners get 15% off their first order. Go to JennyKane.com and use the code BIRTHFUL15 to get 15% off and support the show. Jenny Kane is known for their quintessential sweaters, with their cotton collection providing you with the perfect everyday pieces as the days get warmer. But they also have gorgeous sundresses in a variety of silhouettes for any occasion and spectacular sandals to go along with them. Find the perfect Mother's Day gift or curate your new spring go-tos at JennyKane.com. Birthful listeners get 15% off your first order when you use the code BIRTHFUL15 at checkout. That's 15% off your first order at J-E-N-N-I-K-A-Y-N-E dot com, promo code BIRTHFUL15. Get yourself and the mothers in your life the gift of Jenny Kane.
Welcome to the Birthful Podcast. I'm Adriana Lozada, and today we're going to be talking about the complex realm of inductions. Are there good and not so good reasons for inductions? What are the risks? Do inductions lead to other interventions? To bring clarity, I'll be talking to Dr. Jean DeClerc to see what the numbers say. Stay tuned. The Birthful Podcast, talking to maternity pros and new parents to inform your intuition. Hello, buddy parents and parents-to-be. As always, thank you so very much for listening and all the love you give the show. If what you hear is helpful, then make sure you subscribe so you don't miss a thing. Also, if you'd like to further support the podcast, then support its sponsors. All right. So given that we have entered the holiday season, I thought this would be a perfect time to renew the birthful episode on inductions with the amazing Dr. Jean DeClerc, given that, you know, the holidays should not be a reason for an induction. And it's good to have solid knowledge to make your decision if you find that one is being suggested around this time of year. And I know, I know that sounds horrible, but so is the fact that coincidentally, most babies are born between Monday and Friday during the day. Uh, yeah. Jean will be talking more about that statistical wonder, as well as bringing much clarity to the birth numbers related to childbirth in the U.S. and abroad. So sometimes inductions are required, but they kind of spike during the holiday season and hmm, makes you wonder. Listen to this episode, get some facts, and that will you know make your decision. Now, since this recording, I've also done an episode specifically on the induction process and also have had a fascinating chat with Sharon Muja on the ARRIVE trial that suggests that inductions at 39 weeks for low-risk first-time pregnant people results in a lower cesarean risk than just waiting it out. There is a lots, lots, lots to consider about that research and how the key element of the process is of patiently doing an induction as opposed to a rush induction, which is a super important part of the results and that may or not be replicable in all hospitals. So anyway, make sure you go check out those two episodes as well. I've put links in the show notes along with updates to all the other links that were from originally from the episode and some other new ones specifically relating to the ARRIVE trial. Before we start, let me tell you a bit more about Dr. Jean DeClerc. He's Professor of Community Health Sciences and Assistant Dean for Doctor of Public Health Education at the Boston University School of Public Health, as well as a professor on the Faculty of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the Boston University School of Medicine. If you've heard or read any of the three Listening to Mothers National Reports or the new Mothers Speak Out Report, you'll be interested to know that Jean served as lead author of these valuable documents on people's experiences in childbirth and in the postpartum period. He was a technical advisor also for the film documentary, The Business of Being Born, and is the founder of the website birthbythenumbers.org, where you can dig deep into birth data and see a fantastic video called Birth by the Numbers, Myth and Reality Concerning U.S. Cesarean Sections, which examines outcomes associated with current U.S. birth practices that include updated numbers since the this episode originally come out came out and yes even with those updated numbers the general conclusions are the same as we mentioned here so if you're a birth nerd you are going to be in heaven on that website okay here we go jean it's so great to have you here it's my pleasure thank you so good and before we get to the data on inductions i want to point out that you got your start in the birth community by being a childbirth educator. How yeah. long did that go for? Tell me more. Um, after the birth of my second daughter, um, I thought this was a very cool thing to do, to teach childbirth classes. And so I got certified and taught for about 16 or 17 years. Wow. You got hooked. 
Yeah. Been at it ever since. It's a great area to explore. It touches on so many different aspects of our lives that um, there's plenty to look at and plenty to try to have an influence on. Which is fantastic because it fulfills you and it fulfills the needs of so many people because birth touches everybody, basically. I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) One way or another. You were born or you give birth. Um, What did the numbers say about inductions in the U.S.? How many women are being induced? Um, The official figures, which generally underestimate the totals, um, record about 27% of the mothers in a vaginal birth had an induction. So we're talking upwards of eight or 900,000 women a year. Um, That's up from a rate, so it's a rate of about 27%. It's up from 9% back in 1990. So it's about tripled in that period of time. Over the last half dozen years, it's been fairly level. Though. And so the almost all the increase comes between 1990 and about 2007. What caused that big spike? Um, part of it is a, well, part of it is just a feeling that we can control nature. I mean, there's an article in I think it was Time Magazine back in the 30s that said finally the ability to schedule your birth, and it was all about attempts at induction back then. So I think there's an attraction to being able to say that um, what is a natural process can be controlled. When you look at the reasons for induction, um, some of them are are based on physiology, um, but a lot of them are really more social than anything else. For example, um, in in the most recent Listening to Mothers survey, we asked mothers, what was the reason for your induction? And um, the most common answer was baby was close to due date. But what's interesting with that is um, that doesn't necessarily, that's not a medical reason to do an induction. That's a convenience reason to do an induction with a secondary argument that, well, it won't have many negative effects because it's right around my due date anyway. So the baby is probably full term. So let's talk about a little bit about that convenience. It's convenient for who? Um, it's convenient. Well, sometimes it's convenient to the mother. You know, the second leading reason that mothers responded to us um, regarding was that the mother wanted to get the pregnancy over with, which is an entirely human reaction at that point, probably abetted by all the people who go up to her and say, what? <laughs> You're still pregnant? Mm-hmm. Oh, geez, I thought you would have had it by now. And that sense of um, waiting and waiting can get kind of frustrating for mothers. And if their providers tell them it won't make any difference if they have the the induction now or just wait till they go into natural labor, um, then mothers can be very easily persuaded to do the induction. It also is easier on maternity care systems because you can plan things a little bit better. You know, you bring the mother in early in the day, um, you start the induction very early in the morning, and if all goes as, as they hope, the delivery will happen before supper time. Mm-hmm. And so that allows them to organize their uh, workplace a bit more effectively. Right. And at Birth by the Numbers, you have some great slides showing how more babies are born Monday through Friday during the day at hospitals and how this is not the case if we look at when babies are born at home births. And I definitely want us to talk more about that. But let's take a quick break first. We'll be right back. And we're back. So, Jean, I was looking through Birth by the Numbers, and you have some slides that show what days of the week and what um, times of the day babies are born 
or more babies are born um, and how they vary depending if it's a hospital or home birth. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, I'll just try to paint with words the 400 slides I have on this uh, for your audience. But um, essentially, if you look at birth by days of the week, what you find is there's a, a peak between Tuesday and Friday um, in hospital births. What's intriguing is if you then look at uh, the distribution of births by day of week for out-of-hospital births, birth center births or home births, pretty much a straight line um, for every day of the week. In other words, if you have 100% of the births and it, it was you know, the same every day, it'd be about 14% every day. And that's pretty much what you get in the home and hospital births, in it, uh, the home and birth center births. But in the case of hospital births, you know, it's like nine and a half percent on Sunday, and about ten and a half percent on Saturday, and roughly sixteen to seventeen percent during the week. And so, just, go ahead. And this was during the the day, the time of the day also varied. Absolutely. So, if you look at it by time of day, um, and even if you limit it to vaginal births, because obviously some of the cesareans will be scheduled for different reasons, but even if you look at just vaginal births, what you find is that, um, again, if you took a 24-hour day and split it by 100%, it'd be a little over 4% every, every hour. Um, in the case of hospital births, hospital vaginal births, it's like two and three quarters percent during from midnight to about eight. Uh, it starts to rise at eight o'clock and then peaks between 11 and five o'clock at about four and a half percent and then drops off. So it's, it looks like a mesa out in the west, you know, the slow rise, a flat uh, period at about four and a half percent for um, that time period between 11 and five, and then it drops off again. If you do the same thing with uh, planned home births and birth center births, what you find, it's not a flat line. It's kind of interesting that um, there is a peak, but the peak for those cases where, and presumably in a planned home birth and a birth center birth, there's no induction, um, that the peak is actually between one and three in the morning, um, and it drops off later in the day. Uh, what's interesting, and this is where the sort of institutional systems part comes in, is that we don't organize our, our systems to handle births in the middle of the night. Uh, we seem to have this wish that they would only be convenient enough to have them during our office hours and uh, that we can all go home after supper. And that's just not the case when you let nature take its course. Mm -hmm. And you've just given my husband strong and solid data on what he always complains of, of my life as a doula, that babies just come in the middle of the night. You know, I'm here for you, Adriana. <laughs> I just want to provide data to help you in your marriage. <laughs> Well, I don't know if it's helping me in my marriage, but he'll be happy with it. <laughs> so, okay, so that does, you know, it's sort of data that backs up the fact that things are being skewed one way or the other for convenience of the institution. And sometimes it can happen for convenience of the mothers and mothers are uncomfortable. But taking aside those conveniences, um, what are other reasons that may or may not be so mm, strongly valid for inductions? What does do, what does the data show you? Sure. Um, well, going back to the the mother's responses to the question of the reasons for their induction. <clears throat> excuse me. The um, 
Another one was the care provider was concerned the mother was, quote, overdue. Although it was interesting because when we looked at the actual uh, gestational age in those cases, it wasn't very different from the overall one. Um, sometimes it's mothers wanting to control the timing of birth for work reasons or wanting to give birth with a specific provider. Um, but the one that was really intriguing for us was that um, in about 16% of the cases, one of the reasons that mothers listed was that the care provider was concerned about the size of the baby. And this leads to a whole line of inquiry which we've been pursuing around um, the idea of big babies. Um, if It's a natural assumption. You know, we all think we're, he we're uh, healthier than we've been in the past. Mothers are healthier. They're taking better care of themselves. And that must lead to um, larger babies, which in turn would make labor more difficult, which in turn might lead to more cesareans or the need for an induction to get things moving along, which would be a very powerful and in, sort of inherently understandable argument, uh, except for the fact that that's wrong. Uh, <laughs> babies aren't getting bigger. Um, if you look at if you were to look at that data, and of course, having no life, I have. You see the percentages of large babies actually going down over time, and that's just singletons. It's not a function of the fact that we have more twins born now than we did in the past. Um, that birth weights are not going down dramatically, but they're certainly not going up, and not going up enough to justify um, those inductions. And so, the intriguing question then became if babies aren't getting bigger and mothers are citing that as one of the reasons, one of the leading reasons for induction, what's going on? And so in listening to mothers this time, we asked the question uh, near the end of your pregnancy, did your maternity care provider tell you that your baby might be getting quite large? And what we found was that in almost a third of the cases, um, the answer was yes. Mothers of, this were first time mothers that were, we, um, limited this to. But for first-time mothers, almost a third of them were told that as they approached their um, due date, they were told that their baby might be getting quite large. Now, we have better ways to check these kinds of things, right, with more ultrasounds and such, so we should be able to make that an accurate prediction. And it is sort of. Mm -hmm. In the case of mothers who were told that, their babies tended to be heavier than mothers who were not told that um, by about 13 ounces. What they weren't particularly was uh, what we term macrosomic, really large babies, the kind that, that might well justify a cesarean. And that's babies um, whose weights approach nine pounds. And about 813 is the cutoff. Mm -hmm. and, um, and in only one in five cases among the mothers who were told that their baby might be getting quite large, was the baby actually macrosomic? But, and here's the interesting part, uh, what we found was after those mothers were told that their baby might be large, the behavior started to change, that they were more likely to start thinking about a cesarean, a planned cesarean, than mothers who hadn't been told that. Um, and I think it's essentially just implanting the idea that you might not be able to do this. Mm -hmm. And it makes total sense because when, like, that's, when, as a pregnant woman, that, that can be like your biggest fear is, is this baby too big? And somebody even suggesting that baby's getting too big. Plus, when you're pregnant, you're more 
impressionable. The things stick with you. So I remember when I was pregnant, my sister, she's like, oh, baby's getting big. And I'm like, no, no, baby's like, I I was angry at her for even suggesting the fact that, you know, baby was getting big because I am not a big person. So that, that was scary to me. I can understand the conclusion that your, what you do, your actions do change when somebody suggests this. Of course they do. And in fairness, you know, I presented this data to um, provider meetings, uh, obstetricians meetings. And one of their responses is, well, you know, we're supposed to tell people everything. And that's actually backed up in one of the listening to mothers surveys. We asked mothers, um, what do you want to be told? You want to be told everything, most everything? And overwhelmingly, the mothers said, I want to be told about every possible risk. Um, I think it was something like 78, 79% of the mothers said every possible risk. And so from the provider's perspective, it's kind of a no-win because if they don't tell a mother this, then are they going to get grief later if the baby does turn out to be unusually large? On the other hand, um, we're not sure that they all understand, the providers understand what that simple statement does to the mothers in terms of implanting that idea of insufficiency. Mm-hmm. The other irony here is, of course, um, bigger babies are generally healthier babies. And so um, the idea is not to encourage macrosomic kids, but, um, but we don't want to encourage really small babies either. And so one of the implications of all of this, if I can jump ahead to the next conclusion out of this, is we did a lot of inductions. And um, the concerns started to rise in the early 2000s that we're getting these really high prematurity rates. And people did elaborate research studies to try to document the reasons why um, prematurity was going up. And before we jump forward, and and you did jump forward, but I want to jump back now for a second. (laughs) Okay, let's jump back. (laughs) We'll glide back. In terms of that mothers wanting to know everything. Yeah. um, And yes, doctors needing to tell them your baby's getting, you know, is a little bit on the big side, but there's ways of saying things. And also that your baby might be bigger, but big babies can be born. Right. It's that whole picture. Right. Yeah, no, a lot of it is around the phrasing. And again, when I've talked to, you know, like I do grand rounds with obstetricians, when when I talk with them, that's the point I try to emphasize you may well need feel like you need to tell them that and the mothers may well want to hear that or hear that risk but it needs to be put in the context of um, the overall health of the baby which is probably a positive sign in this case mm-hmm. and also the ways you mentioned the ways we can measure this through ultrasounds um, through Leopold's which is actually putting the hands on mom's baby on the belly and trying to figure out what position the baby's in and how big baby is. Those things are not 100% reliable either. No, they're not. Um, one of the things we found that's interesting, they're getting better on ultrasounds. We, we asked the mothers uh, in the 2005 Listening to Mothers survey, um, we asked, were you told what your baby's birth weight might be when you were getting your last ultrasound? Um, and we took that and we compared it to what, what the actual birth weights were. And what we found was there was a tendency to do two different things, um, seemingly conflicting things. Mothers were told either 
that oh, there was a disproportionate uh, number of mothers who were told their baby might be larger than the baby actually was. There was also a disproportionate number of mothers who were told their baby might be smaller than it actually was. In other words, there was a tendency to talk about the risks at the two ends of the spectrum and not focus on the fact that the baby's probably in a normal weight, weight range. And if you wonder how can that happen, I think, again, if you, if you structure this around the nature of that interaction between the obstetrician or the midwife and the mother, um, it's a lot easier. If I tell you that there might be a problem and there's no problem, you're just relieved. If I don't tell you that there's a problem and there is a problem later, then you're very, very much upset. Um, and so if you think of that, that as sort of a simple, and if I tell you there might be a problem and there is a problem, I, I predicted it correctly for you and you could plan for it. So in a lot of ways, it's much easier and safer for providers to tell people that there's the potential problem arising than to say everything's probably, you know, everything looks fine. Mm -hmm. It is a cat's 22, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have anything or that, does the data gleam anything um, of how to better this position we're in? Yeah, I think part of it is for mothers to ask follow-up questions um, around these things. That if they're told the baby might be getting large, well, first, because I assume all mothers in the United States read listening to mothers, um, they'll see it. They don't. <laughs> it's a shock. <laughs> that uh, in fact, uh, they the actual differences they, they should. Uh, the actual differences are fairly small that we're talking about in these cases. Um, but secondly, you know, and this is where it goes to the culture of your provider. Um, what are the implications of that? And that's where one provider might say, well, actually, it's not going to make that much difference. You still, you know, you can still deliver this baby um, and you'll do fine and the baby will likely be healthy versus, well, let me tell you all the things that could go wrong. And that's really problematic. So some of this is about finding a provider who gives you a balanced picture that is talks about risks, but also talks about the uh, level of, of risk and the likelihood that there's going to be a problem associated with it. Right. Because at the end, the suspicion of a big baby is more responsible for your higher risks of induction or a C-section than the actual size of the baby. That's what we found in the research, that um, the, the suspicion of a big baby was a better predictor of an induction than the actual size of the baby. That's it's just so interesting. I, I know this already, and it, every time I hear it, it still like boggles my mind. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, let's talk about other non-evidence-based reasons for inductions that you've seen. We'll be right back. Today's episode is sponsored by Acorns, and sometimes I find that investing gets put off because it doesn't seem urgent or because with our busy lives, we may not have the time to research and manage said investments, which is why I so appreciate that Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future and that you don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. So for example, I take advantage of Acorn's roundup feature where they round up the purchase amounts I make in my linked account to the nearest dollar, and then they automatically transfer that to my invest account portfolio. 
Also, Acorns can recommend an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. For me, that's easy-peasy investing. Head to acorns.com slash birthful or download the Acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today. Client testimonial may not be representative of all clients. Tier 1 compensation provided. Compensation provides an incentive to positively promote Acorns. View important disclosures at acorns.com slash birthful. Investing involves risk, including loss of principal. Please consider your objectives, risk tolerance, and Acorns fees before investing. Acorns Advisors LLC Acorns is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are provided to clients of Acorns by Acorn Securities LLC. Member FINRA SIPC. For more information, visit acorns.com. Diaper rash. It can be a truly uncomfortable experience for a baby. And so I find that one of the biggest conundrums when diapering is figuring out what diaper cream to use. So many options are thick and goopy, making them hard to apply and hard to wipe off. But I can personally say that this is not the case for Dr. Mom Butt Balm. Dr. Mom Butt Balm is a pediatrician-approved skin protectant that is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, designed as a breathable formula to help maintain an optimal skin barrier while allowing the healing to occur. This butt balm was developed by a mom who is also a doctor, hence the name Dr. Mom Butt Balm, when she couldn't find any traditional products that worked for her baby's persistent diaper rash and she wasn't about to settle. So she created Dr. Mom Butt Balm to go on smooth and be easy to remove while also being gentle on your baby's delicate skin. With Dr. Mom Butt Balm, you can say goodbye to excessive wiping to clean your little one's already chafed skin. Dr. Mom Butt Balm is so soft and goes on so smooth that you'll only need a small amount instead of having to layer on a thick goop. Plus, it has a lovely minty scent. Learn more about Dr. Mom Butt Balm at drmombuttbalm.com. That's drmombuttbalm.com or look for it at amazon.com. And we're back. All right, so what other reasons for inductions do we have that you've seen data that shows that maybe things aren't so evidence-based? Well, um, again, mothers wanting to control the timing of the birth um, for work or for other personal reasons. Um, and again, I can understand where mothers are coming from. You know, we have this phenomenon in the United States where we have fairly limited um, um, support for mothers who take maternity leave, for instance, or mm -hmm. families who want to use maternity leave. And so mothers will get, maybe from their employer, get four weeks. And so what I find them doing on a regular basis is hanging on, and we found this when we asked about it and listening to mothers, waiting as long as possible, going working right up to the final due date to try to control. And then once they actually have, have left work, they want to try to have the baby as soon as possible. So they have the most time postpartum with the babies. If we had a more sensible uh, set of rules around maternity leave that encompassed both the last period of pregnancy and a, a reasonable period of time afterwards, then mothers wouldn't be put in this situation of playing this game of, you know, it's sort of a roulette thing. You know, can I spin this thing just right to time it so I'll have as much time as possible with the baby afterwards? That's solely a function of the fact that because of the, the nature of our pay systems, um, mothers have to make that kind of choice when they shouldn't be forced into it. 
And that's a huge public health issue, which is on a macro scale. Absolutely. Oh, it's it's beyond maternity care. Um, and it's something that some states are starting to address more and more. Uh, but it's um, it's going to be it's absolutely a function of the context in which you work, whether or not your your employer has a has a plan that provides sufficient coverage. And you know, for reasons of profit and everything else, people are trying to cut back on fringe benefits for folks. And this is one that has implications for the health of the mothers and the babies. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, going back to the induction reasons. Did the data glean anything on low amniotic fluid? Because I hear that as a as a reason for induction a lot. Um, that was one of the reasons that that um, well, there's a couple. Uh, the some others cited the fact that the water had broken and there was a concern about infection, which we would call a medical reason. Um, and mothers talked about the fact that amniotic fluid around the baby was low. Um, in both those cases, it's like 11 and 12 percent of the mothers cited that as one of the one of the reasons mothers could check more than one reason when we gave them this list because there may be more than one reason that's at work mm -hmm. in these cases and so um but those again so what makes this really tricky is that there are some diagnoses that are clear-cut water's broken or not generally is pretty easy to determine um and the judgment part about that is how long can you go before the concerns of infection start to arise? Because medical decision-making is around that, right? Medical decision-making is balancing the, um, the risk of the intervention, in this case an induction, against the risk of whatever difficulty you're doing the induction for. In the case we're citing now, concern about infection. Um, the issue is that's still a judgment call in some cases. Guidelines get established, but they're not necessarily hard and fast rules all the time. Uh, likewise, with the case um, that there's concern because the amniotic fluid around the baby was low, that that's um, that may be an indication and it may not, and it depends on on the interpretation by both the provider and what what the mother's comfortable with. We also had a category called care provider was concerned the baby wasn't doing well, and again how clear that judgment is, is going to depend on who your provider is. Um, what this keeps coming back to, of course, is having a provider who you completely trust. And one of the trickier parts for people is the fact that um, they don't know who their provider is. And by that, I don't mean they don't have any clue. It's that they have a team of five or six people, perhaps, who work in a group practice, which is an understandable thing to do for the sake of the provider's lives but makes it less predictable for mothers. And they may find they have a really good and trusting relationship with a given obstetrician or a given midwife, but they don't know if at the time that they go into labor, they're going to be attended to by that person or someone else who they may or may not like. And so ironically, one of the other reasons that was cited by mothers for inductions was uh, the mother wanted to give birth with a specific provider. So trying to control that aspect of it when the provider says, uh, it's usually in this kind of context that, uh, well, Adriana, you know, um, you're pretty close to your due date and I'm going to be going on vacation for a couple of weeks. So if you really want to stay with me, we can induce you before I go. Right. <laughs> and that's a, you know, that depends on, so on the, the good news is the mother feels that close to the provider that they really want that provider to, to attend the birth of their baby. 
Um, on the other hand, that may not be the optimal time for that baby to be born. If there was a problem with the dating at all, you may end up with the baby smaller than it would have been if you'd simply waited. Right, and then you end up probably or maybe facing a cascade of interventions because an induction, just because you agree to an induction doesn't mean it's going to work. Right. Um, in fact, what, one of the things we found was we asked uh, mothers, uh, did somebody try to do a medical induction? And it was about 40% of the cases where there was an attempt at a medical induction, which worked in about three-quarters of the cases. So the actual induction rate in listening to mothers is closer to 30%. Um, but what happens in those other 10% of cases is the mothers are sort of hanging in then and waiting and waiting. And, and what happens is if you go in the hospital and you stay in the hospital for a given period of time and you're not in labor, people are going to feel compelled to do something. If you were at home all that time nobody and you had no other indications, uh, nobody would be too concerned about you not, not being there. But if mm -hmm. you're hanging around in the hospital, especially ac across a couple of shift changes, and she's still in room 321, mm -hmm. what about 321? What are we going to do with 321? Uh, then the, the drive to intervene with something starts to get stronger. And then you go into the cascade of interventions, which you, it's a perfect segue because you have a really nice slide about that um, with first time mothers who, those who chosen who, or who had an induction and didn't have an induction and then want to have an epidural and didn't, and who ended up with a C-section and who didn't. Can you, I know this is tough because it's such an easy visual when we're just talking. But. And this is this is yet another reason people want to go to the website Birth by the Numbers. Um, we also have this figure in in the listening to mothers surveys as well, if people want to take a look at it. But what we did was we looked at at low risk mothers, relatively low risk mothers, uh, first time mothers, full term births, thirty seven to forty one weeks gestation, who experienced labors. We took out the the planned cesareans. Um, and we took out cases of um, diabetes and hypertension and such that might be other reasons for intervention. And we simply asked the question of those mothers, um, did you get an induction or not? And in those cases, actually the induction uh, rate was 47%. Um, we then looked at whether or not they had an epidural. And to continue this, among those mothers who had an induction, uh, almost four in five, 78%, said they had an epidural. And if you continue along that, mothers who had an induction and an epidural, the cesarean rate was 31%. Go to the other side of that, that analysis, and what you see is mothers who didn't have an induction and didn't have an epidural, the cesarean rate was 5%. Now, that doesn't mean that, that that's inevitable, if, that if you have a, an induction, you, all those other things are going to happen. But um, it does show powerfully the differences along those different lines of, of behavior. Right. So it's, uh, again, not as clear cut as there's, you know, because you have an induction and an epidural, then you have a less chance of a cesarean. Oh, actually, if you have an, if you have an induction, the other way yeah, you have a more, you have a greater chance yes. of a cesarean. And by the way, for people who had sort of a mix of those, no induction but an epidural or an induction but no epidural, the cesarean rate was 19 or 20 percent. So it's sort of in the middle of, of those two. Um, again, if you really work with data a lot, you know nothing is simple. And I know we like to have simple explanations. And I wouldn't say that if you have an induction, then you're going to you have six times the chance of having a cesarean. 
but um, there is that potential, the same logic that goes into doing one intervention um, serves as a contributor to the next intervention. Tell me about the change in the when moms are having their babies in terms of what term is and that switch from 40 weeks to 39 weeks that you've been seeing. So um, this wasn't listening to mothers. This is just my general data geekdom. Uh, if That's you look okay. at the, you, you can bring you your data at, geek, geekdom, geekdom in. <laughs> okay. Um, if you look at the distribution of babies by gestational age, in other words, you know, we typically would say it's nine months of pregnancy or 40 weeks of pregnancy. And if you were to look at the distribution of births by week of pregnancy, what you find in the United States is that in, in 1990, uh, the most likely week the baby was to be born was 40 weeks. Um, about 23% were born at 40 weeks and about 22% were born at 39 weeks. By 2013, we had significantly shifted that distribution to the point where by 2013, 30% of the babies were born at 39 weeks and only 20% were born at 40 weeks. So we've taken a pattern that's existed for ever and shifted it a week back. What's interesting is that um, it's sometimes assumed that this is a function of other things, that maybe, we're, maybe it was always 39 weeks and we just didn't measure it well before and we're measuring it well now. But in fact, uh, one of the things I did was pulled up data on planned home births in the United States. And if you look at those, the distribution of those births, it's still a peak at 40 weeks. In fact, it's, it's a decided peak. It's 31% of all of the home births, the planned home births, occurred at 40 weeks, and only 24% at 39 weeks, and 19% at 41 weeks. Um, and so that natural distribution is still possible. We've changed that distribution as a result of our own interventions. And again, intervention in and of itself isn't a bad thing. It's weighing that intervention against whatever risk that the intervention's occurring for. And the argument here is that to the, to the extent that we increasingly do these interventions without having a counterbalance of some medical risk, then the harms of the intervention don't they, they will clearly outweigh the harms of not doing the intervention. And so uh, it's something for us to think about. You know, when we decide to do an, an intervention, it should be for medical reason and it should be in the context of sort of a, a cost-benefit analysis of what do we gain by this and what do we lose. And so that's one of the things to sort of put it all together and wrap up. That's one of the things that moms have to take into account and pay attention to that what the data shows is that interventions are done for both medical and non-medical reasons. Some are needed, some are not. And it's really important what who they choose as a provider um, because that will determine part of their outcome or, or how their care is managed. Absolutely. You just said it better than I. <laughs> See, you didn't, you didn't need me here at all. Oh, my goodness. That's not true. Then it would be a really boring half hour. <laughs> it's just me and myself. No. Um, As opposed to me and my data. <laughs> Gene, I love your data. 
your data is fantastic because it's clear cut and there's birth is so unpredictable and everything around it is so uncertain that having these numbers is beautiful to me. <laughs> <laughs> so in that, in the care providers, something else I wanted to add is I see a lot of moms who end up having a, you know, an OB because that was their GYN. And, you know, this has been my doctor for all my life and now I'm having kids and sure, I'll just continue that care because we have a relationship. Not knowing that it's different care that's going to happen. And even though you have a relationship, that might not be the best person for the delivery of your baby or for or for your birth. Babies aren't delivered. They're not pizzas. For the... <laughs> <laughs> for your birth, even though they're fantastic for your your gynecological care. I, I, I It is a different choice. You know, historically, obstetricians did um, attend births to build up their gynecological practices later. And, you know, the, the historic patent had been you do OB for 20, 25 years, you build up a clientele of women who trust you, and then you step back because OB is incredibly demanding, especially back then when people would actually, you know, it would be one private practitioner all by him or herself, usually him. And so they would have to attend women at any time, day or night. Um, but you would do that, you would sort of invest in that, and then when you got older, you just did gynecological care, which is much more predictable. Um, but you built your practice up by doing OB. Now it's a little bit different in part because the age of mothers has gone up. And so there may be well, uh, may well be cases where people are doing gynecological care for a while. And then that flips over into, into OB. Mm -hmm. it, it, and, and then it colors different things in your life. Um, it may well. Yeah. Um, but Having said that, if the argument is that mothers should think about midwives, then the answer is yes. Um, if, they're, if they're relatively low risk, they should certainly think about midwives. But the challenge there is sort of uh, a, a um, personnel challenge. We don't have enough midwives at this point. Well, um, so when, it, it, I think we not ahead. only have enough midwives, we, we, don't, we don't have enough midwives, but we also don't have enough institutions or institutions that can cater to a midwifery care of expectant care as opposed to a more managed care. Yeah, we've had a, a, a rapid rise in the last six years of birth, freestanding birth center births. Um, but that's a rapid rise on an incredibly small base. And so it still constitutes less than 1% of all births. Um, but that can only increase with some changes in regulations and such that make it easier to establish a freestanding birth center and make sure that there's backup for that freestanding birth center. Hospitals have not been often generous in their willingness to back up birth centers because they see it as competition. Which in a way kind of it is, of course. Oh, yeah. Because they're yeah. buying for the same pregnant woman. But I think we can see other models around the world that work a little better um, in respecting those natural rhythms that you see with your data and having that sort of the midwives be the expert of normal and the OB care be the expert of high risk or, or, or emergency situations and having the two of them work together. That 
such a sensible solution. We may get to it someday in your lifetime. I'm too old, but uh, we may get to it at some point. That's certainly the case in a lot of countries um, where midwives are the sort of first-line maternity care providers and then simply refer if, uh, if a mother starts having uh, a condition that would be deemed higher risk and the need to be attended to by an obstetrician. Uh, that's also way less expensive in systems, not just that midwives get paid less, but also because there tends to be less intervention overall. But in the United States, we've, we established long ago a system that was obstetrician-based. And, and again, obstetricians, I, I work with obstetricians all the time. They're, they're, of all the people in medicine, you know, they don't go into it because you get incredibly rich as an obstetrician compared to some other areas. They go in it because of their, their love of maternity care and their love of mothers and babies. But they have a different focus, and the focus is risk-based instead of based in what's normal. Right, because they did, nobody goes in there, oh, I'm going to go harm this mom. They, they have a love for what they do. It's just a different system, like you just said. Yeah. Good. Thank you so much for all of this. We could definitely talk more and more and more and more. And I might have you back to talk about cesareans, because I know that's another thing that you have, you know, a few, few numbers on. A few thousand numbers <laughs> on, yes. <laughs> but... If, if listeners want to know more about what you're doing, um, how can they get in touch, contact you, follow? Yeah, there's a couple things. Um, the, the best bet, if you want to get some of the data that I've been talking about, is a website that I have with a bunch of students of mine who actually do all the work on it uh, called Birth by the Numbers. It's literally Birth by the Numbers, one word, uh, .org. And um, you can see resources there. We have data on states. We have international data. Uh, so you can get some background information. We also have links to a lot of reports that people might want to access around this. Uh, if people are interested in the listening to mothers' surveys, all of them are free. They're all downloadable. Uh, they're available at childbirthconnection.org. And, um, and if you go to that site, and actually if you just put into Google the phrase birth by the numbers or listening to mothers, these sites will come up. Um, and we don't have a lot of competition for them. So uh, I suspect they'll come up on the first page and you can find these things pretty easily. Very easily. And I encourage people to go and look at them because they're fantastic, especially birthbythenumbers.org. So you can see all these slides that we talked about and tried to describe with words, which is very hard. <laughs> And thank you for agreeing to do this, because I know you like your slides, and they're great slides. Uh, I carry the slides around with me everywhere, and I use them when I talk to people on the street as well. So, yeah, I do like them. So you must be really happy about tablets, because then they're... <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so people uh, seem a bit upset when I pull the tablet out and start showing them a graph, but that's oh, my problem. Yeah. Thank you so much, Gene. Okay. Mighty Ones, check out the in-depth show notes for this episode at birthful.com, where you can also learn more about me, the show, send me messages, and more. This episode was produced by me and made possible by you. The title song for this podcast is Vive Ace by Kevin McLeod, and the sponsorship song is Air Hockey Saloon by Chris Zabriskie. Find them both at freemusicarchive.org. I'm Adriana Lozada. Please join me next week when I'll be talking to another mighty parent as they share their amazing story here at the Birthful Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. 